2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I'm speaking with Professor Jonathan Herring about his latest book, Law and the Relational Self, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Now, Jonathan Herring is a fellow in law at Exeter College and a professor of law in the law faculty at the University of Oxford. He's written on family law, medical law, criminal law, and legal issues surrounding care and old age. His books include Vulnerability, Childhood and the Law, Human Thriving and the Law, Medical Law and Ethics, Criminal Law and Family Law. Now, in fact, Jonathan has over 250 publications, including 107 books, which is, I I find my my mind boggles. I find it hard to imagine uh, writing that much. So it's pretty awesome to have him on the show today. And as I say, we're going to be speaking to him about his latest book, Law and the Relational Self. So Jonathan Herring, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Jane. It's great to talk to you.
0: Great to talk to you too. Now, just to get us started, can you begin a little bit by describing... Oh, sorry. How did you come to write Law and the Relational Self?
2: Well, from my earliest days when I was a law student, um, I was rather frustrated about the kind of cases... Uh, and the kind of issues that we were asked to think about. Um, So I remember as a student reading lots of cases about stevedores, who has something to do with boats, and lots of contracts of insurance. Um, And it seemed to be primarily about business, and about uh, people making money, and essentially very rich people. Um, And those were things that didn't really interest me very much. Um, the things that interested me were, were friendships and uh, love and uh, closeness with other people. Uh, and yet those were things that seemed not to really be discussed uh, in your traditional undergraduate degree. It was almost as if um, things in the house are personal friendships. Uh, the things that actually really make life worthwhile were not being discussed uh, in the law. Uh, And so I've always been much more interested in the law as it involves things that actually uh, matter to people and their relationships. Um, And so this book was sort of bringing together lots of ideas about how the law can refocus rather than perhaps on economic concerns, um, but focus on the things that matter, that focus on our our relationships, uh, which are core to who we are.
0: And now... With this idea, thinking about things that do matter to people, you come up with this concept of the relational self. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. Now, I think the the traditional idea of the self is that we are separate individuals. Um, We're encouraged to have plans for our lives, our, our career plans or our goals that we want to achieve. Um, Perhaps as an image of uh, individuals having particular sets of beliefs, perhaps their political beliefs, for some people religious beliefs or uh, moral principles. Um, But we're essentially defined uh, as to um, I am myself, I am an individual with my own interests. Um, And the relational self challenges that idea. uh, And it argues that, in fact, the self emerges out of relationships. So rather than being individuals who might choose to have relationships with each others, uh, it's from our relationships that we understand ourselves. Um, actually, I think if you think about our, our earliest beginnings, uh, that uh, we're born into families, uh, we're born into people who raise us, people who, give us uh, a sense of identity that emerge from our relationships with our parents. Uh, Those people who look after us give us language that we use to describe ourselves and to describe the world around us. But that is language that comes from relationships. Um, So it argues then that that the sense of identity, who we are, um, isn't an individual thing, um, that what's good for us, what's our well-being, isn't separate. We're not um, billiard balls in suits, uh, as I've put it in one book. Uh, rather we are uh, emerging, our sense of identity emerges from our relationships.
0: And just taking a step back then, what is the traditional understanding of the self and how is this regulated in law?
2: So the typical case, uh, and and probably how most lawyers would approach a case, is to imagine we've got person A against person B, and we see that in the names that we give to our our cases. It's Smith against Jones, or whoever the two parties are. Um, And a lawyer might list the interests that Smith has and list the interests that Jones has and the legal rights the two parties have uh, and attempt to weigh them up. Uh, uh, in some sense. Um, So we start off with this assumption we've got the two sides who are competing against each other uh, and normally uh, we have one winner uh, and one loser. Um, But it's also seen, I think, in the kind of rights that the law gives a special protection to. So uh, the right of autonomy uh, is in many circles legal circles seen as the most important right the right to be free to live your life as you wish Um, and we've seen that in the pandemic uh, that we should be free to behave as we wish unless there's a really good reason uh, to interfere with uh, our freedom and so governments are called upon to explain that Um, but this idea of autonomy then being left alone uh, by the government, by others, to pursue our vision of the good life, is for many people, uh, many lawyers, the the key right. And that then is combined with other rights, um, perhaps sort of rights of privacy, uh, rights of uh, bodily integrity. But all of these rights are seen as the right to be left alone, uh, not to be interfered with, so that the individual self uh, is uh, protected. Um, But that's where I think the law is is so misguided because that kind of understanding, that kind of vision of rights and interests uh, doesn't place any value or understanding on our relationships.
0: And now just to expand on this further, picking up this point of autonomy, you you say that the concept of the relational self would actually reject the traditional conception of the autonomy or the right to be left alone, as you say. Can you expand on this a bit further?
2: Yeah, so I think there are two ways in which the relational self would challenge autonomy. Um, The first is how we decide whether somebody is able to exercise autonomy. So traditionally in medical law, uh, for example, if a doctor is deciding whether a patient has mental capacity, uh, is able to exercise autonomy, they will be assessed um, on their own. Uh, The doctor will interview them, try and work out, do they understand the essential facts about their condition? Are they able to weigh up the different pieces of evidence uh, and reach their own decision? But those tests of capacity are almost all that individual-based model. Um, Whereas, in fact, I think the way we make decisions uh, is not on our own. Um, Most of the traditional writings of autonomy, I think, imagine the ideal decision maker to be an academic philosopher sitting in their study in an ivory tower, weighing up and carefully thinking through the issues Whereas I would argue, actually, real autonomy is found sitting down with some friends over a cup of tea uh, um, and chatting through issues. Um, And that's how actually we normally make important decisions. We talk them through with our friends and our family. So decision making isn't an isolated event, um, but is rather an event where someone, through discussion with others, Uh, reaches a decision so we should be assessing capacity the ability to make a decision not isolating an individual just putting them in front of a doctor and saying right can this individual have they got the intellectual skills to make the decision but this person with their friends and family will they be able to make a decision and the second challenge is this idea that uh Our lives, um, we write our life stories, our lives are ours, our decisions about what I do with my life. But in fact, there are very few decisions that we make that only affect us. Uh, The decisions we make affect those we are in relationships with. Uh, Most important decisions I would make would affect my partner and my children. uh, And we have to make those, those decisions together. So the idea of autonomy that you can write your life story just doesn't ring true for most people because their lives are intermingled and, and mixed up with the lives of other people.
0: And I think this certainly comes through. Um, one of the key themes of the book uh, you write about is that you write, an important aspect of relational autonomy is a recognition of the impact of patriarchal and other social forces on the decision-making of women and men. However, it also shows the particular wrong of patriarchy, racism, disabilism, etc., that it impacts on the social and relational context in which people make decisions and their understandings of themselves. So I think this sort of builds on the point that you've, you've just sort of touched on. Now, this is theme of patriarchal oppression via the concept of the individual self was a really interesting theme that reoccurred throughout the book. Can you talk more about this?
2: Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great question, Jane. Um, m- my answer to the previous question was, of course, imagining uh, this gathering together with friends uh, and with those around you in a very positive light. Mm. Uh, and of course, it can be for some, some people. Um, but in that same way, those who are around us, social forces can be a negative thing can actually, uh, the relations, relational context can be harmful. Um, and in our society, uh, dominated by patriarchy and assumptions about women's roles, uh, then that can be a highly negative uh, impact. There can be assumptions that women should be subservient to men, that they're uh, that a wife's role for example is to comply with her husband's wishes and do what's best uh, for him and so the relational and social context uh, although on the one hand providing the essential can provide the essential support we need where it's good it can also be negative uh, and oppressive and um, particularly in our society against women uh, but other oppressed groups as well.
0: And again, picking up on this, so one of the other oppressed groups that you write a lot about in the book um, are people with disabilities, and you talk about how the relational context can actually be harmful, um, and so, sorry, uh, yeah, really, it can be harmful. So you you write that um, the relational self can actually impact in breaking down stigma, bringing about equality, and in the recognition of the value of diversity for people with disabilities. So. Applying a rational uh, lens of analysis, how can we think about disability? Yeah.
2: So that's, that's right, I think. The individual model of the self uh, proposes that we should be self-sufficient, we should be independent, um, and that's the goal that we should be aiming for. Uh, and disabled people, therefore, are presented as, as lacking, uh, that they need special accommodations, Um, And that the ideal for a disabled person should be that they can reach self-sufficiency, that that's the goal we should be reaching. Um, And I think there's a lot wrong with that. Um, So just to make a couple of points, um, one is, as I mentioned, we tend to see, uh, refer to special accommodations we make. So the obvious example is putting a lift in so that a wheelchair user can reach, say, the second floor of a building. Well, what we overlook when we say that is actually no one can reach the second floor of a building about there being some kind of accommodation or facilitation. Um, Some people may need stairs. uh, Some people will need a lift, but we'll all need something if we need to get up to the second floor of a building. Um, And so we've arranged society so that we look at people with disabilities uh, and say, oh, they need special provision without overlooking the fact that we all need um, special provision. Um, We're all dependent upon the state to provide us with all sorts of things like water and sewage and health. Um, None of us have this ideal of self-sufficiency and independence that the individual model uh, is promoted on. Um, And I think seeing uh, independence as a goal means that impairments that disabled people have are seen as as negative things or bad things. It's seen as a a bad thing if you need someone to help you perform tasks. Um, Whereas in fact, I think that's that's wrong. Uh, It's great for people to come together, to cooperate and work together. So this individual model works against both disabled people, but also society uh, at large in encouraging us to think we can be utterly self-sufficient and independent.
0: And that sort of leads into the second chapter of your book, um, which is about law and the vulnerable self. Now, I know you've written, um, I think, perhaps even a book on this idea of the vulnerable self, and it relates to the concept of the relational self in the sense that our mutual vulnerability makes us both dependent on each other and our relationships and vice versa. You write then that the concept of the universal vulnerability is therefore integral to the claim of the relational self. Can you explain the concept of the vulnerable self and expand upon how it relates to the relational self?
2: Sure. So the idea of vulnerability as it's normally used is that we have particular groups in our society who we see as being vulnerable. So perhaps older people or children or disabled people. Um, are identified as being vulnerable and in need of special protection by the state, um, and ideally uh, interventions which help them to stop being uh, vulnerable. But what universal vulnerability claims is that, in fact, uh, we're all. Vulnerable. It's actually in the nature of our humanity to be vulnerable, and I think the pandemic has shown that to be uh, so true. Um, We like to imagine that we're in control of our bodies and that our bodies are are like barriers uh, against the world, Um, but we've now learned that that is not correct. uh, That uh, we are all profoundly vulnerable. Um, That said. Um, of course, we don't all experience vulnerability in the same way. Um, And that's because society has enabled some people, has privileged some people, by giving them uh, more resources to overcome their vulnerability than other people. So the universal vulnerability claim is not that um, everyone experiences vulnerability in the same way. It's rather that everyone's nature is to be vulnerable Um, but where we see some people as being uh, in uh, experiencing particular vulnerability that's because uh, of the way society has allocated uh, resources Um, so the link with the relational self is that if we are all vulnerable if we accept actually uh, we are all in danger of uh, suffering serious harm uh, that we're not self-sufficient then the only way we can cope and survive as human beings is to cooperate together uh, and reach out and find mutual solutions through relationships with others, Uh, that those are essential uh, because of our universal vulnerable nature.
0: And so in that sense, you also make the argument that vulnerability is usually thought of as a negative or that it's a burden, but in fact, it's something that's desirable and should be celebrated. Can you explain why Why this is?
2: Yes, you're right, vulnerable. But I think most people would not like to be uh, described as vulnerable, uh, and indeed in uh, the UK, the, the government in the 2014 CARE Act uh, moved away from the language of vulnerability because it was seen as being stigmatic to, to say that someone was vulnerable. Um, But I think uh, that vulnerability is actually uh, a great thing. And uh, an edited collection I've done with Daniel Bedford has has recently argued that. Um, And that's because um, vulnerability requires us to acknowledge that we can't do things on our own, uh, that we have to reach out to others. We have to be open to learn things from others. We have to draw on each other's strengths and weaknesses to find cooperative solutions to the challenges we face, uh, and that's a really great thing. Many of uh, the uh, great joys in life are found in in working together with others uh, and finding solutions together.
0: And now, I think that's a really interesting point. So, and it relates to this idea of caring. You know, we have these caring, interdependent relationships. Um, and you write that care is actually essential to our humanity, but it's sidelined in terms of both public policy and also the media. So how does thinking about the concept of the relational self help to redefine the role of care in our society?
2: Yeah, well, once once we realise that it's our human nature that we are uh, vulnerable, uh, that it's inherent with our, our human nature that we need each other, then we start to see how important the activity of care is. Um, So I often say to my students that uh, if the government were to announce that next week there would be no accountancy or uh, no banking for a whole week, well, society would be fine. Uh, uh, There'd probably be some uh, economic problems, uh, but nothing uh, hugely disastrous. Uh, But if the government were to announce there'd be no caring for a week, Uh, the results would be catastrophic. Um, And again, I think the the pandemic has brought that out uh, to uh, the open so clearly that, in fact, it's the work of care which is, at the end of the day, the essential thing uh, that humanity needs to survive. Uh, And yet, uh, caring goes Uh, When it's informal caring, it largely goes utterly unvalued. Uh, The care of parents um, and women particularly having to bear the brunt of that care goes unrecognised, unpaid for. Uh, And carers are often some of the most marginalised and economically vulnerable people in society. And even when care is paid for, Paid carers are often, again, the lowest paid amongst the workforce uh, and in some of the worst uh, conditions that they face. So somehow we've ended up in our society with the most important activity, care, being the most devalued activity.
0: And as you say, the pandemic has brought this to the front, how dependent we are on carers. Um both in terms of hospital workers and also uh, women as carers. For example, um, I've read that a lot of the burden of homeschooling and childcare in the pandemic has shifted to women and it, you know, it may potentially even put the women's movement back many years. Um, so can you explain what are the implication of care being women's work?
2: Um, well, you're, you're quite right. Uh, that society, for many years, has been based around an assumption that it's somehow natural uh, that uh, the mother undertakes uh, the bulk of the childcare, or if not the mother, other women uh, undertake the bulk of childcare, but also domestic work uh, and uh, house uh, housework, cleaning the house, all of those kinds of uh, activities, um, and that has meant. Uh, For women, even those who are in employment, they have then this double bind of not only the work uh, that they're doing that they get paid for, but then all of the extra work inside the house. Um, And study after study has shown that although there is uh, an increasing change in attitudes, so that when men are asked how should child care be divided or how should housework be divided, men will say, oh, it should be shared uh, equally uh, between men and women in a heterosexual uh, relationship. Um, the practice is still lagging far, far behind that. Um, and we can see that with the uh, economic uh, vulnerability that, that women experience. Um, But it's also, I think, not just uh, an economic matter. uh, It's uh, the work receiving no acknowledgement or value within society um, and the impact of that work uh, on employment being ignored. Um, And that, I think, is key to to the issue you were raising there about the pandemic, uh, the impact of childcare, homeschooling uh, in the workplace, Uh, is something that most employers uh, really haven't yet got to grips with or been able to handle well.
0: And so then what do you think the implications would be of shifting from a concept of an individual autonomous self to a model of a relational self?
2: Well, I think we'd we'd, we'd suddenly see a change in how we value and what we treasure in society. Um, So if we look, uh, for example, in the media, uh, at politicians, much is made of the GDP, um, much is made of rates of inflation. They'll normally be the news, uh, the leading news story when there's some of one of those big uh, economic indicators, the trade balance. Uh, those are the things that are often seen as being uh, key uh, those are mentioned by politicians as an example of a successful government. How well have they handled the economy? Um, I think it was uh, uh, Bill Clinton who said it was the, it's the economy, stupid, or at least one of the American uh, presidents who said that, who, who thought the economy was the key thing. Um, but actually, perhaps we need to rethink uh, our whole political and indeed legal structure and instead be asking, well, actually, how well has care taken place uh, in our society during the last year? How have the policies impacted upon the production uh, of care? Are the burdens of care being shared between men and women? So it's a change of focus from seeing economic productivity being the primary goal of our society, to being caring relationships, being the primary thing that we're hoping to produce.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: And the interesting thing about care, and I think this relates to the idea that we are all vulnerable, is that you write about the, the interactive and interdependent nature of care. And now, I was really struck by this because I have children, and I, I've never thought of it like that. But I was like, yes, he's right about this. So can you expand on this, please?
2: Yes, I think um, one of the problems with uh, the care literature and the the ethics of care literature, uh, which I'm a great fan of and I think is is, is fantastic, but there has been a tendency in the past to separate out carers and people who are cared for. Um, And uh, that, I think, can lead to uh, some very unfortunate ways of thinking, particularly when it comes to disabled people that are The idea a disabled person has a carer uh, very easily feeds into an image of the disabled person being somehow a passive recipient of care and the carer being a saviour figure who comes running in to to meet their needs. And that's wrong. Uh, And it doesn't match the experience of care. So having read through the accounts of care, uh, we can see that actually most relationships of care are interactive. Uh, both sides are receiving different things and giving different things. Even though it might appear that one person is the vulnerable, weaker part in the others, the stronger party. In fact, it's rarely like that when you unpack the dynamics. that it's a much more mutually supportive thing. And I think that's especially true in relation to parents. Uh, there's so much in our society which says that as parents, we have responsibility to shape our children, to educate them, to teach them good manners, to make sure they behave well, to look after them. But that's all one way. That, that's imagining parenthood is a task, a service, that the parents are doing to the child. But we ought to be understanding parenting as about a relationship. Um, And I know my children have taught me so much uh, and have cared for me in so many different ways uh, that the idea that somehow it's it's me who does the teaching or me who does the caring uh, is an utterly false image of what being a parent is. And that as parents, parenting should should change us profoundly. Um, and that's one of the wrongs perhaps about hyper-parenting, the idea that uh, a parent sets out a goal for their child and says, right, I want you to win the Australian Open Tennis Competition or whatever it is uh, by the age of 18, or I want you to get these exam results and go to this university. But the wrong with that is that you're imagining you're the one who knows the answer and you're imposing that on your child rather than realising actually you're going to be learning a lot from this from your child. Maybe your priorities are going to be changed um, as you learn from the child and care for the child. Um, So we need to move from parenting being seen as some kind of service or some kind of task uh, to being a relationship which changes both parties profoundly.
0: And now to put this sort of idea in uh, perhaps in more context, um, I just want to talk a little bit about you give two very poignant examples of different societies, one which is care-based and one which, which is not. So of the first you write, imagine a society where care is central, where its primary purpose is to care for those who are dependent on others to meet their needs, where all activities are assessed On what they contribute to the care of others. Economic productivity would be valued insofar as it produces what is needed to support and care, and insofar as it's consistent with care. Those with needs would be recognised for all they contribute and would not be seen as an expensive burden. Now, in the second society, you imagine one in which the generation of wealth is the primary goal. When success is measured solely by income, exhaustion, loneliness and hardship are the order of the day for these carers, even if cheered by the rewards of the caring self. Women who undertake the majority of care work and make up the larger portion of older people suffer significantly more than men. A society in which the highest court of the land accepts that someone would have to wear incontinence pads and spend the night soaked in urine and excreta because it's too expensive to provide a nighttime carer. Now, one of these societies sounds all too familiar. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um,
0: But the other one, on the other hand, does sound rather idealistic. But somewhere I'd much rather live. So I want to ask: How realistic do you think it is that we could move towards a care-focused society, and how do we do this?
2: Um, okay, that's that. That's a great question, and and, and I hope you're right. I hope <laughs> most people would agree that the second society is is much the better one to be in. Um, and of course, it's it's hard to get there, and as it's it's, it's hard to break free from the assumptions that have embedded our society for so long, that it's economic productivity, making money, being wealthy, having lots of things, having a big house, which are the number one goals uh, for people's lives. Um, But that's where perhaps I think that the pandemic uh, has given people time to rethink uh, about their lives, rethink Um, is it right that I spend actually vast amounts of my time working for a company um, to uh, make themselves and me richer and and don't have time to spend with uh, my family? What's actually really important uh, in our lives? What really matters to us? Um, And I hope maybe it's a forlorn hope that, that our society might learn through the pandemic that actually it is caring for others, Uh, spending time with those uh, we love, developing relationships, which actually is what gives life its true happiness and true meaning. Uh, And that um, reworking our society, rethinking our society um, is the way ahead. Um, And so just to give one example, rethinking about what does it mean to be a good employee Um, Maybe many companies assume that a good employee is one who works hours of overtime without asking for extra pay, uh, is actually uh, dedicated to making that company their number one priority. Um, And perhaps that's wrong. Perhaps that's not how we should see employees. That's not a healthy way for employees uh, to be. And trying to find ways we can find people can mix their uh, employment with their caring responsibilities where it will actually produce a better society uh, for everyone.
0: And now perhaps turning to what could be described as the opposite of this mutually caring society with uh, mutual, recognised mutual vulnerability, um, your next chapter is on law and the abused self. Perhaps this could be seen as one of the failures of the individual self in society, and the relational self could actually step in to assist. So, in this chapter, you write that law. um you write that about one in three women worldwide have experienced either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetimes. But in fact, most of this violence is intimate partner violence. It has been claimed that the home, in fact, is the most dangerous place in modern society. Now it's quite shocking to read this. Still, there are discrepancies as to what constitutes intimate abuse. Can you explain the various ways abuse is defined, and especially the limits to these definitions?
2: Yeah, so if we if we suddenly go go back in time, uh, domestic abuse uh, was seen essentially as a private matter, uh, not uh, really for the public concern. Uh, much less important than uh, violence in the streets, for example. And, if we go back to the Victorian times, we, we have this idea of the familias, the father figure, whose job it was to control behaviour in their house, and the government's job was to control behaviour in the street. Um, and in that model, not only was uh, domestic abuse uh, by uh, a husband of his wife, or indeed children, uh, not only would that be seen as, as, as um, permitted, actually positively encouraged because it was his job to con- control the uh, household. Um, gradually, uh, we've moved away from that idea and most people will now accept that domestic abuse can be uh, as serious as violence in the street. But the traditional legal tools have failed to capture the wrong of domestic abuse. Um, and um, I want to make two points about that. Um, The first is that we tend in the criminal law to see our crimes as being a particular incident. So A punched B on Tuesday the 3rd of January at 7 o'clock in the evening, and that describes then the crime. Uh, And we still see that model even used in domestic abuse. So um, A uh, assaulted Uh, His partner on the following dates. But what that understanding fails to capture is the way that abuse is relational, Um, that it's not a series of one-off incidents, it's rather a relationship of coercion and control that develops over time. Um, And so we need to understand uh, that the real wrong of coercive control, um, is as much the time between the obvious violent incidents, which may be time of fear that it's going to be happen again, uh, but having to behave in a particular way so that someone doesn't anger uh, their partner. The second second point, if I could just, just add, uh, is I think the relational self shows us the evil of domestic abuse. Because it's in our intimate relationships that we should be finding our identity. Uh, It's within our intimate relationships that we find our value and meaning. But in domestic abuse, those relationships are being used as tools against the victim uh, to undermine their value. Uh, The openness and trust, which is essential for intimate relationships to flourish, are taken advantage of, are exploited by the abuser against the victim. So that then highlights, I think, the very particular wrong of domestic abuse, that those relationships, which should be about holding someone up by giving someone a sense of self-worth, are used to devalue them and knock them down.
0: And just to expand this somewhat, the concept of intimate abuse um actually is perpetrated by and c- helps to perpetrate ongoing structural inequality which is something you write about um, so what is your argument in this respect with relation to the perp- uh, uh, to the patriarchy uh, via domestic abuse sorry that's clear
2: yeah so i think there's a two there's a two-way relationship there so i think Patriarchy helps sustain domestic abuse and, and domestic abuse helps sustain patriarchy. Um, so let me uh, I- explain both of those. So um, patriarchy helps sustain domestic abuse because domestic abuse takes place within uh, a patriarchal context. Um, and that patriarchal context is teaching uh, women in heterosexual relationships to um, uh, comply with the wishes and the demands and the requests of the husband, Uh, that there still are many messages that a good female partner is one who meets her partner's needs, uh, and if she doesn't, he might go off and find someone else, Um, and that there are expectations about childcare, about housekeeping, uh, and uh, all of those uh, which are often drawn on by an abuser. So it's striking reading the accounts of domestic abuse, how often the abuser is seeking to control how the woman dresses, uh, where what she spends her time doing, uh, how she behaves sexually. Um, and these are all often trying to constrain the woman to be adopting a traditional subservient uh, old-fashioned housewife image Um, and the abuser there is is having their message reinforced by patriarchal uh, messages that are sent that yes he's right this is how a good wife should be behaving Um, and then of course it works the other way around so domestic uh, abuse reinforces um, patriarchy Uh, it challenges women's self-confidence it can limit their access to the workplace. And so a very common feature of coercive control is where the male partner is seeking to prevent uh, the woman accessing employment or independence or seeking further education, for example. Um, And so keeping women in the home uh, uh, out of uh, the public eye is often the role of abusers, and that then itself reinforces um, patriarchy.
0: And now domestic abuse doesn't just um, harm women, um, but the concept of the relational self also helps to draw out the impact of intimate abuse on children. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this a little? Um,
2: Absolutely. So I think uh, certainly uh, in the UK, and I I think sometimes in in Australia, uh, some of the courts have been saying things like, Um, Well, uh, yes, the father was abusive towards the mother, but he was always uh, a good father, or he's still uh, dedicated to the children. Uh, And that idea that someone can be abusive to uh, the children's mother, but still be a good father, is, I think, seriously misguided there's a lot of evidence that children who are living in homes where domestic abuse and coercive control is taking place suffer in myriad ways, educationally, socially, in their own relationships uh, as they grow up. Um, And I think we need to recognise that domestic abuse is a form of child abuse um, and that someone who has uh, abused the mother of children, is themselves uh, abusing their children.
0: Thank you. Um, I want to turn next to the part about medical law and the relational self. So what's the traditional understanding of the body and its ownership, and how would a relational understanding alter this?
2: Yes, it's become very popular within uh, medical law and ethics uh, to argue that um, we can own our bodies Uh, Our bodies are our property, uh, that we can do with them what we want. Um, And so we see that, uh, first of all, with the great emphasis placed on autonomy, um, so uh, that only if I consent can things be done to my body, Um, but also in the idea of ownership of bodily material, uh, that my body uh, is mine. Um, Now, I think... Uh, uh, and also, th- thirdly, uh, in, in, in the concept of health, uh, that we understand health to be being disease-free, uh, that my body is healthy. Um, but all of those, I think, can be challenged by the idea of a relational self, um, that although we like to think our, our bodies are self-contained, uh, in fact, uh, our bodies, as Shildrick puts it, are leaky, uh, that our bodies are constantly dependent upon other bodies, uh, that our bodies are interacting with other bodies. Um, sometimes if I'm teaching and I want to make my students feel slightly queasy, uh, I point out that when they leave the lecture hall, uh, there'll be slightly less them uh, than they were when they arrive and slightly more the other people around them. Um, And and that's because bits of us are falling off all the time. We're acquiring bits from other people. And, of course, that's become uh, dangerously and worryingly true uh, in the pandemic. But but the idea of us being sort of self-contained, separated bodies doesn't recognize the way, in fact, our bodies interact with other bodies all the time and are dependent upon uh, other bodies. Uh, And so, too, with health, then. Uh, that health is not having a disease-free body. And again, the, the pandemic has shown that health is a communal thing. Uh, health must be about living in a healthy society. Um, as we can see with the virus, it's, it's it's no good being virus-free if you're living in a community where uh, the virus uh, is rampant. So I think we need to rethink what it means to be healthy, away from a focus on health being an individual thing, health being having a healthy body, to trying to develop healthy societies, healthy communities, healthy relationships.
0: And I think that's interesting. I mean, one of the things we've learned in the pandemic, you know, the importance of physical health and also mental health. And so just turning now to the mind, and you did touch a bit on this earlier, relating to the concept of autonomy and especially the autonomy of the mind and mental capacity. Uh, The concept of mental capacity plays a significant role in medical law. Now, currently in the UK, assessments of capacity and autonomy are based on an individualised assessment of capacity, especially with relation to decision-making capacity. And you you did say, like, it's, it's pretty artificial to do this. So as you know, the focus is whether an individual on their own can understand the relevant information, weigh it up, and make a decision. Now in fact, there's many ways these kinds of assessments are artificial. As you mentioned, like we usually make decisions, you know, sitting around with a cup of tea with our friends. Um, The process of capacity assessments has been widely criticised, especially by scholars in the disability community. However, it is difficult to imagine a world absent capacity assessments in certain cases. Can you explain what a relational approach to capacity assessments might add?
2: Yeah, so I, th- I, I think, as, as I was talking earlier, it, it is about trying to find uh, ways of looking at communal decision making. So let, let me explain a little bit more what I have in mind. Um, so even under the traditional model, if you go and see the doctor, the doctor will normally diagnose your condition and give you the options. And then the idea is you then choose what you want to do. Uh, that the doctor is the information provider uh, and the patient is the decision maker. Um, But I don't think that's a helpful model. And I don't think it's one that actually most patients want. They don't want to be abandoned to their choice in that sense. Um, And many doctors, when I've spoken to about these issues, say the most common question they get when they inform a patient of diagnosis and options is, well, what would you do, doctor? Uh, What would you do if you were in my situation? And I think many patients are there reaching out for help and support in making the decision. Um, They're not just being given information, but to have a chat, to talk through uh, like they perhaps would with a friend. So I think there's implications here for understanding the doctor-patient relationship, uh, where the doctor actually needs to become, to some extent, Uh, emotionally connected with the victim, to have those qualities of empathy and compassion uh, so that they can talk through with the patient the different uh, alternatives and help the patient reach the decision which is right for them.
0: And so then what would we do in really complex cases? For example, someone who seemingly has capacity but makes what is objectively perceived as really poor choices which may in some ways even be seen to conflict with their values. So I'm thinking of, for example, and it's a common example that's given, but someone with anorexia who says they don't want to eat but also expresses a wish not to die. What should the law do in these situations and how could capacity be regulated?
2: Well, I I think the law, and I've I've got rather radical views on this, but I I, I think the law has greatly overemphasised Uh, this idea of autonomy, that patients should get to make the decision uh, which um, they want to make, and we have to respect that decision. Um, And I think there's a number of problems there. First of all, I just think it's a myth that most of us have full mental capacity. Uh, There's plenty of evidence that most of us use uh, unconscious biases, uh, irrational thoughts, um, so a good example is many studies have shown if you tell a patient uh, that an operation has a 90% success rate, patients will say, yes, uh, I agree to have the operation. If you tell them it's got a 10% failure rate, they'll say no. <laughs> um, now, of course, that's the same piece of information, but just presented differently. But whether how you present it produces hugely differing rates of acceptance. Um and we know with the literature on nudging, uh, uh, all of the literature on decision making, how people are easily swayed one way or another, uh, use irrational things uh, to uh, make decisions. So we like to think we're great decision makers. We like to think we're uh, rational and uh, evidence based. Uh, but in fact, very few of us are. Um, and yet we've based uh, our legal Uh, structure around an assumption uh, that somebody with capacity uh, should be able, uh, we have to respect their decision. Um, A second example of that is we know many, many people, indeed many of the difficult cases, are not resolved by autonomy. So your example of the patient with anorexia is a good one. The patient will say, yes, I want to get better, but no, I don't want to have any more calorie intake. Um, and that kind of conflicted decision uh, is uh, true in most of the difficult cases. So saying we should comply with the wishes of the patient uh, is there very, very difficult. We can't both make the patient better and not give them extra calories in the anorexia example. Um For example, in the English courts recently, somebody uh, with learning difficulties wanting to have a child but not wanting to have the pain of labour. Well, we can't respect both of their wishes. You can't both have a child and not have uh, any of uh, the pain uh, of labour. And autonomy doesn't give us the answer to those kinds of cases. So I think the key to move ahead it's to recognise that, actually, when we talk about capacity, um, the law assumes this is a, an on or off thing. You've either got capacity or you haven't. What we need to do is recognise that, actually, autonomy comes on a scale. Um, there are some cases where somebody understands uh, a little bit of the information, but not all of it. Uh, they're able to think slightly rationally, but not completely. Uh, and then at the other end, there are people who understand a lot of the information, who are, who are uh, very rational. But most people are, are somewhere in between. That uh, They've got a flawed understanding of the information uh, and a flawed reasoning process. Um, now, once we understand that autonomy uh, and capacity is on a scale, I think we can then weigh that up against the uh, harm that they're facing. So if the decision is one which is about something really important, maybe a life or death decision, or a decision in which they are going to be left with uh, very serious impairments as a result, well, their decision uh, that will lead to that consequence should only carry weight if it's an absolutely 100% strong uh, autonomous decision. Uh, which it very rarely will be. Um, so we're weighing up, if you like, two halves of the of, of a pair of scales. On the one hand, what's the outcome of this decision? Will, will it be a good decision or not? Will it be harmful or not? And then how autonomous is the patient? And the more harm there is, the more strongly autonomous uh, the decision needs to be. Um, and one of the... Uh, reasons why um, I think this approach is desirable. We have to remember if a patient is refusing treatment and it's going to lead them to being in great pain uh, and suffering as a result of complying with their decision, we really need to be sure that we've got a good reason to leave them in pain and suffering. And just saying, oh, well, that was your choice doesn't seem to me to be a good enough reason, particularly if that choice is an impaired one. Um, So I think we should always be asking, are we sure that the autonomy uh, is sufficiently rich, uh, that they really were sufficiently informed and able to think through the issues carefully, enough to justify leaving them in pain and suffering? Um, And I doubt that will happen very often.
0: I think that's very interesting, that the idea that the individual concept of self um in law requires this sort of binary judgment a person has capacity or they don't have capacity it's it's sort of either or and i think this happens in the criminal law as well but in the relational concept of self it can be more flexible um and adaptable to how people's relationships actually are and uh, are interdependent on each other um
2: yeah yeah. Uh, Sorry, go uh, on. Absolutely, no, I agree with you. So there's a hypothetical I've discussed once where uh, a uh, a patient has a um, problem with incontinence, uh, and it meant that their partner were having to deal with all of the mess from the incontinence, Um, and an issue then arises that a small operation could heal the uh, incontinence problem. Um, Well, traditionally, we'll say, well, that's the patient's body. They get to decide whether or not they have the operation. But I think that example shows that that's a narrow way of looking at it, that their partner's having to deal with all of the problem with the incontinence. They're having to carry that burden and just saying, oh, it's the patient's body. They get to decide. Overlooks that connection between the bodies and shows that that's a far harder case than uh, it would normally be seen by 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 medical law and ethics.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and so this idea of privileging the individual self, um, notwithstanding the interdependence of people in families, um, I think you, you write about this in your chapter on family law and the relational self. So I'm interested to know what are the assumptions that prevail about families that are embodied in law and who does this leave out and what's the harm?
2: So perhaps the the great key principle in family law, certainly in in England, is that the welfare of the child should be the paramount, which the courts have interpreted to mean the only consideration. So if there's a dispute over children, uh, the court will work out what is best for the child. Uh, They will ignore what uh, is good for the parents um, and the decision will be made solely looking at the child's interests. Uh, now, at first sight, uh, that sounds that that's right. Many people instinctively feel, <coughs> excuse me, that's that's right. Good. Uh, the children should be the court's focus. Um, but the problem with that is it imagines we can have the child isolated from their parents and from their Uh, siblings Um, but we can't. Uh, Children's welfare is intimately bound up with the welfare and the well-being of their parents and actually if you think about it uh, any parent will know however much you might like the principle the welfare of the child shall be paramount and I mustn't think about myself Uh, actually that's impossible There'll be days when you're just exhausted. Uh, and yes, it might be best to spend time playing with the child, but you just need to have a lie down for a bit. <laughs> um, or you need to go and visit uh, uh, a relative who the child finds very boring, but you just need to, make, uh, you need to have that family outing to see the relative because they're lonely. Um, and certainly, if uh, a parent's got more than one child, well, you know you can't benefit both children at the same time. Um, and so what I think most parents try and do is, is try and find a sort of healthy balance. Uh, yes, there will be times when the focus is very much on the child, um, but there'll be other times when uh, perhaps it's not the ideal for the child, but it's an it, inevitable part of the give and take uh, of family life. Um, so one weekend you might do what one child wants to do, and the next weekend you might want to do what the other child wants to do. Um, But what you don't do is just try and privilege the welfare of one child with with no consideration uh, for anyone else in the family. Um, So, and that idea of a healthy sort of give and take, uh, where um, you recognise that uh, it's about relationships over time, um, that a healthy relationship for a child isn't one where they get what's best for them all the time that act, uh, that actually wouldn't be in the welfare of the child if every decision was made based on what's in their welfare. That would uh, produce uh, a spoiled child in that old-fashioned terminology. Um, and I don't think many of us as children would like to be raised with our parents making every decision based solely on what was best for us. That wouldn't be a healthy way to be, uh, to be raised. Um, so I think we need then to... Uh, to rethink this idea that we can imagine a child as being separate from uh, the welfare uh, of the parents. Um, And it's particularly become an issue in relation to access or contact disputes, particularly, again, where there's been domestic abuse. So let's say the child is living uh, with the mother who's suffered abuse from the father, but the father wants to have contact. Um, that contact might traumatise the mother, uh, reawaken the memories uh, of the abuse. It might even be a form of continuing the abuse. But traditionally, the courts have said, well, what her uh, impact upon her doesn't really matter. Let's look at what's best for the child. And if the child will benefit from contact, let's, let, let's allow that. Um, but we need to make uh, a much more sensitive appraisal of the relationships within which the child lives. Um, and there, uh, the importance of the child's primarily living with the mother of the mother-child relationship.
0: And I'm glad you brought up this topic of divorce um, because you do write about divorce, um, especially in the context of the unequal distribution of advantages and disadvantages in terms of economic gains and losses, which are the result of societies rewarding particular types of activities. Can you explain... Um, how this plays out in divorce?
2: Yes, as we were saying earlier, the uh, majority of childcare and domestic work uh, is undertaken by women and that often impacts uh, upon their employment prospects, promotion prospects and things like that. Also, for many couples, there's a choice to be made, perhaps if one person is offered a job in another part of the country or something like that, uh, which might not be ideal in employment terms for their partner. So it's very common during the course of a uh, relationship for one person to have economically gained uh, and from another person to have been economically disadvantaged. And typically it's the person who's engaged in child care or care for other relatives who has lost out. So one of the things the courts need to do uh, at the end of a relationship is to try and equalise uh, those advantages and disadvantages that the couple have suffered. Um, now, you might think the easy way of doing that is just to divide the assets equally in half. Um, But that overlooks the fact that one of the important gains that's often been made during a relationship uh, is uh, employability, Um, that someone has progressed in employment uh, and has got earning potential that the spouse or partner who's been engaging in childcare uh, does not have. So if you just divide the assets equally uh, on divorce, then the spouse whose uh, career has progressed will quickly be able uh, to earn substantial sums of money. The partner whose career has been set back uh, during the marriage uh, will have lost out. So uh, I think the courts, uh, it's not straightforwardly trying to equal, give uh, an equal division of the assets, but trying to ensure that looking forward uh, into the future, There is uh, an equal sharing of the benefits and goods of the relationship.
0: And now we see the impact of the concept of the individual self, not just in family law, but also in criminal law. And you write that criminal law is revealing in terms of how the law understands the concept of self. Can you explain the key assumptions that criminal law makes about the concept of self?
2: Yes, so it's a a key principle uh, in criminal law that you are responsible for your behaviour. So there was a a big case in the uh, England Supreme Court where uh, a drug dealer gave someone some drugs, uh, the victim injected these drugs, uh, and then the victim uh, died. Um, And the drug dealer was charged with murder and manslaughter Um, But the House of Lords explained he was not guilty because the uh, victim had chosen to inject themselves. It was their choice to inject themselves and therefore the drug dealer could not be held to be accountable for other people's choices. Um, So there, I think we have a rather individual image of responsibility in the criminal law. You're responsible for your behavior uh, and your choices, um, but you're not responsible for the choices of other people. Um, And I think that can be questioned, uh, the idea that we're not responsible for how other people behave, that we don't have uh, a duty of care to try and Uh, avoid, for example, acting in a way which would be likely to cause other people to uh, commit crimes. Um, It rather allows people to wash themselves, wash their hands uh, of uh, a situation. Um, So there was a very interesting article I was uh, reading recently looking at self-service checkouts uh, in supermarkets. Um, And it was pointed out that uh, these, of course, can facilitate shoplifting, um, but that they were created to save money by the supermarkets, uh, that the supermarkets had uh, cut back on staff, uh, preferred the the self-service checkouts, but they also knew that that uh, uh, enabled uh, and put in uh, the way of temptation uh, people who might be tempted to steal. Um, now, I think that that discussion, I'm not, and I'm not seeking to argue there that shoplifters from self-service supermarkets shouldn't be guilty of a crime. Um, but to be looking there at the role of the supermarkets um, and this, I think it just raises the question that it's, it's a rather crude tools we have in criminal law to say this person's guilty, this person's innocent, this person's the victim, this person's the defendant. Um, and those ideas of sort of responsibilities owed to, owed to people, uh, uh, those nuances are often lost in the way the criminal law deals with cases.
0: Yeah, some of the other really interesting examples um, on this you give are of marital rape and BDSM. And you make this argument that, you know, there's this limited notion of the individual self and it doesn't fully recognise harm Um because of this sort of limiting of the concept of responsibility. Can you explain the limits further of recognising harm by an individualistic concept of self and respect for these kinds of cases?
2: Yeah, so I'll use the example of consent uh, in sexual offences. So so let me use uh, a case that came before the UK courts called Kirk. uh, And it was a man who came across a uh, young homeless woman who was very, very hungry. uh, And she asked him for money. uh, And he suggested that for uh, just a few pounds, he would give her a few pounds if she agreed to perform a sexual act uh, on him. Um, And in fact, what he said to her was, he said, look, I'll give you a couple of minutes to think about it. Let me know what you decide. Uh, And came back and she agreed that for three pounds or something like that, uh, she, she would perform a sexual act for him. Um, now, he was charged with uh, an offence um, and uh, to many commentators, it was assumed that he would be not guilty, that she had chosen, the victim in this case, had chosen uh, to accept the money in return for the sexual act um, and that she therefore had uh, consented and was if you like, sort of responsible for any harm that occurred. Um, and I think in a very welcome development, the court said no. Um, later cases have, have very much muddied the impact of the decision. But I think it was an excellent decision um, that it said he knew the defendant, the man in this case, knew that this woman was hungry, was desperate for money. Uh, and although that she had in one sense consented, he had really taken advantage of the position that she was in. That uh, this was not uh, performing the sex act was not something that she she really wanted to do. Um, and it, uh, I think you can develop from that case this sense of uh, responsibility. And I think this is a key point in sexual offences, that we tend to ask in a sexual offence, uh, did the victim consent or not? Uh, was there a yes or a no? Rather than asking, uh, had the defendant taken reasonable care to make sure that the victim was genuinely consenting? Had they given them the space and the time? Had they made sure that they knew the information they needed to know before consenting? Um, So moving more to a responsibility model, um, but particularly if someone's going to do something which is going to be harmful to the victim, like a sexual penetration or an act of violence in BDSM, it shouldn't be enough just to say, oh, well, they said yes, so I went ahead. Um, But rather, well, are you sure that yes was a sufficiently strong expression of their wishes to allow you to do what was harmful to them? Um, So we can see this, for example, with uh, uh, a victim of a sexual assault who's intoxicated, that the defendant will often say, oh, well, they said yes, I went ahead and had sex. Um, But I think we're entitled to say, well, you were doing an act the sexual penetration, where if there wasn't proper consent, that would be a very serious harm. And if you're going to do a very serious harm to someone, you really need to make sure that there is proper full consent. And if you could see that the victim was drunk, what steps did you take to make sure they fully understood what was being proposed, that this really was their wish? Or did you just hear the word yes, which is what you wanted to hear and go ahead? So I think there's an example of uh, using that idea of responsibility to others, acknowledging each other's vulnerabilities, uh, taking care for each other, rather than just proceeding on ahead uh, when there appears to be the answer that the defendant wants to hear.
0: And so it seems to be an expanded concept of responsibility to others, not just a sense of a responsibility of the individual. Um which is currently limited in criminal law, but the relational self could actually expand that um, and bring about better outcomes, I think.
2: Yeah, um, that's right, that's right.
0: So just to sum it all up, you write that this book has called for the reimagining of what law could be like if it took the concept of the relational self seriously. It would be a law which saw the sustenance, support and reward for caring relationships as a central goal. It would be law which recognise that we cannot consider the rights and interests of individuals separately from each other, but needs to focus on enabling caring relationships to develop. A law which would recognise our deep universal vulnerability, requiring legal protections and state provisions, and which recognise that powerful social forces mean that some people are very well provided for by the state and others are not. Do you have any further concluding thoughts on how or when to introduce the concept of the relational self and its comparative merits? Um,
2: well, I hope that um, the pandemic has given us that chance to rethink what's really important in life. Um, and I think often when, when facing death or facing uh, a disaster that d- does give people the chance just to reflect back on actually what gives our life meaning what gives our life value, what's really important to us. Um, And I think that when we do that, we see that actually at the end of the day, it's not making money or having lots of stuff. It's those relationships of love and care, which are the things that are of the greatest value, are the most precious things that we have. Um, And yet uh, in our law uh, and in our society, those relationships of love and care uh, go largely ignored. They're, they're not what are seen as being the government's business, or uh, they're not seen as valuable or important to the law. Uh, and I hope uh, that the reflection that many people are undertaking uh, as uh, after the pandemic results in, in a society rethinking about what's really important, and how we can have our focus on promoting relationships of love and care.
0: It's certainly, and I hope also, that it is one of the positive things to come out of this whole pandemic, Um, and perhaps it will be a path for action. Now, Jonathan, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, can you tell me about what you're working on now?
2: Right, well, my my current project is is a somewhat uh, depressing one, um, but it's looking at, at, at suicide prevention. Um, and I'm arguing that uh, we should recognise uh, a right to be prevented uh, from committing suicide. Um, a lot of the, the debate uh, around uh, assisted dying and euthanasia uh, has been dominated by the idea of giving people um, the, the right uh, to have Uh, access to assisted dying of various forms Uh, and and in fact I I, I accept there are I think not many but there are some cases where that is appropriate but those debates have uh, dominated thinking uh, about end-of-life issues and have really obscured uh, the importance of suicide prevention Uh, so in this next book uh, I want to promote the idea that there's actually uh, a right to have suicide prevention in place.
0: It certainly sounds very interesting and perhaps even controversial. So hopefully we can have you back and speak to you um, again about that book. That would be lovely. Excellent. Um, I'm Jay Richards and I've been speaking with Jonathan Herring about one of his latest books, Law and the Relational Self. It was published by Cambridge University Press last year in 2020. Jonathan Herring, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you very much, Jane.